in Genesis chapter 35. So if you remember last week, it was a pretty tragic chapter. Uh, Jacob had been called by God back to the place that he had left from when he was to go get a bride from outside of the land of Canaan. And as he goes back to Paddan Aram, he goes and he meets up with a family that he just so happens to be related to. And there he meets his bride. And as he is uh, 20 years later headed back to the land, he will then, as he gets there, arrive, um, but before he goes in, he stays on the edge. And as he stays on the edge, rather than going straight into the land, he builds, he, he buys property and he builds a house. By the way, the people of Abraham never built a house any other time. Uh, they were tent dwellers. They recognized that they were sojourners on this earth not permanent beings. They were there to kind of go where the Lord told them to go. Uh, but as they uh, plant there and as they build a house, he, he, he builds a house in a city called Tent City, Sukkoth. And, and he builds a house there permanently. And then perhaps he was convicted. He moved on and he, he goes across the, the Jordan River and he ends up in a place called Shechem. Now, from this point on in Scripture, when you read the name of the city of Shechem, you're going to find out that it's an ungodly place. I just read this week in 1 Kings where Solomon's son, Jeroboam, actually where the kingdom of Israel is split from just being the kingdom of David to ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. At that point, Jeroboam sets a false worship system up in a town called, guess what? Shechem. And so anytime you think of worldliness, like being in the world and too much like the world, setting up pagan idols and false worship, think of the town of Shechem. When you see it in scripture, it should pop in your mind, wow, this isn't a good place to be for the believer. And so as they left Shechem last week, before they left, uh, number one, his daughter is raped in this town. A kind of PG-13 R-rated, horrible, uh, treacherous. Uh, but they were never supposed to be there. And also during their time there, because of this incident with Dinah, what happens is his sons, though they believe that they're being righteous, they utterly wipe out a town. They become mass murderers, not righteous. And so as they're in this place and all these horrendous things have happened, God speaks to him at the beginning of Genesis chapter 35 to Jacob and says this, says, then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Go to Bethel. If you'll remember back in Genesis in chapter 28, Jacob arrived in Bethel. He slept with his head on a rock as he was fleeing his brother who wanted to murder him. He's caught between a rock and a hard place, literally, and as he wakes, he has this dream, and he has this vision, and it's a vision of a ladder. And this ladder is a ladder where angels are ascending and descending, and then at the top of the ladder is God, who speaks to him great and precious promises. These promises have held his attention and kept him grounded while he's been gone out of the land. 
But God in this verse directs him. Now that he's uncomfortable, now that problems have happened in his family, essentially when he leaves Shechem, his family's falling apart. His family is falling apart. So what is he to do now that he's He's a child of God. He's wrestled with God. God's gotten a hold of his heart. God's given him instructions on what to do. He's delayed obedience, which, by the way, delayed obedience is disobedience. God tells us what to do. He tells us when to do it because his timing is perfect. And we can either get on board or we can get in trouble and cause problems. And so we've seen the problems unfold, but God had already told Jacob to go back. But when he delayed obedience, it caused major issues. But this time, guess what? God, our God's the God of second chances. He doesn't say, hey, you really messed up. Now go. What he does is he allows Jacob's disobedience to be his consequence that makes him uncomfortable. And then he tells him again the same thing. Go back. Leave. Go to this place that I told you to go in the first place. And this time, Jacob actually goes. He tells him, go there and dwell there. What does it mean to dwell? Uh, The same word is abide, stay there. Go to Bethel, go to my house. Make an altar there. Don't just go there. Don't just, our application might be, don't just go to church but dwell there in the house of the Lord. What's the house of the Lord? Is it this building? Is it a place where you got saved 20 years ago? Is it a location that you feel the most peace with God? No, go to the place of God. Go to the house of God, built not by human hands, but built with living stones. We are the house of God. Dwell amidst each other, and as you dwell there, make an altar there. What's an altar for? An altar will alter the way you live. An altar is a place that you lay things down and you let them be consumed by fire. Now, do we offer up sacrifices anymore? We don't have to. Jesus is our one final lamb of God. He's our sacrifice. But then now, instead of having to make sacrifice, our sacrifice has been made for us. Now we get to make sacrifice. We get to lay down our burdens We get to lay down our dreams. We get to lay down the things that matter the most to us and say, Lord, I can't be a good steward of this. I want you to have it. I want you to consume it and make it what it's supposed to be in my life. I want these things that I love so dearly to have the proper priority in my life. And then he says, worship the God. Now, notice here what he says. He doesn't say just worship God. He says, worship God. The God who appeared to you when you fled from Esau. The God that you needed when you were caught between the rock and a hard place. The God who delivered you from your enemies. The God who sustained you while you were gone. And the God who has brought you back. Who has led you every step of the way. I am your God. Worship and serve me. Not these other gods that all these other people around you, the people in Shechem were serving. Lay down your idols. So verse uh, two, it's a lot, right? Just one verse. We could stop there and we could camp there all day. But I won't because I can't keep my attention for that long. He says, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Now notice his response, verse two. 
So Jacob said to his household, having heard from God, now he's going to lead from a place of having leadership in his own life. If you've ever known that God's wanted you to lead your household or to lead a group of friends, you cannot lead anywhere where you, anybody anywhere where you've not already been led yourself. So God's given him instruction. He's given him direction. And it says there that Jacob said to his household, to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. So step one, purify yourselves. Now, in Christ, we don't need to purify ourselves. Who makes us pure? Jesus. You know, the Sunday school answer. His blood has cleansed us of all unrighteousness. We're made pure by him. It's not about what we do. It's about what he has already done. And yet, what scripture instructs us to do, God has set you apart. He has cleansed you. He has made you whole. Now, make yourselves whole. Make yourselves clean. Well, wait a minute. I can't make myself clean. What does he mean here? Well, the instruction is, God has made you pure Now, do the things that you know that God requires in order to make yourselves pure. Positionally, he's made us as pure as we can ever be, white as the driven snow. But practically, we need to set ourselves apart, consecrate ourselves to his service. And what that means is laying down things that are sinful, laying down our idols. Wait a minute, did they have idols in them? Well, if you remember when Rachel left her father's house, she stole his household god, and she took it with him. As a matter of fact, it almost caused him, uh, her father, and Jacob to come to blows. And if the Lord had not intervened, there would have been a fight. There would have been some family issues. Somebody, Jerry, Jerry, they'd have been fighting each other. But for whatever reason, the Lord shielded them for a time. But now that they're getting ready to go back to the house of God, to worship God in spirit and in truth, God says, okay, I've let you carry this with you in secret for long enough. Now I want you to purify yourself. Take these household gods and give them to me. And notice what it says there in verse 2. Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. You're filthy. God's given you clean garments. Put on the garments of righteousness. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God. Now remember, in Shechem or Sukkoth, Sukkoth, Sukkot, here I go again, he had already made an altar. But God said, I don't want an altar in this town. I want you to go back to my house and build an altar there. He says, I will make an altar there to God specifically the God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands. So it wasn't just one, it was lots of them. And the earrings which were in their ears, perhaps these were trinkets used to worship their foreign gods. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. Now, interesting here, he says, take your idols, take your sin. By the way, it's not just a bad idea to worship false gods, it's sin. And sin separates us from God. Now, you might say, I don't have any household gods. 
I don't have little statues on my dash. If I go to India, and I've been there twice, they got bobbleheads. But their bobbleheads are like Ganesh, uh, the, the false gods, these multi-armed gods. Some of their arms have like battle weapons in them, and some of them have uh, things that are about, you know, uh, you know, uh, trying to think of uh, procreation. You know, they, they have these things for, you know, they worship these gods so they can have more babies. You know, the god of fertility, the god of pleasure, uh, the, the god of war. And they have these gods on their dashes. But I would challenge you this morning not to think of these gods like household gods. A god is anything that you give your reverence to, anything that you give your time and your resources to, anything, by the way, also that you fear. We worship what we fear. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's your children's success. Maybe it's your person getting into office. Maybe it's fill in the blank. What do you worship? Uh, Many times you can actually look at your checkbook ledger and see where you put the most of your financial resources. And then you might see what you truly worship, even though you might think, I'm worshiping God with my whole heart. But the point is, here they take these sins. Maybe there's things that you, uh, you give your heart to when no one else is watching. Uh, and they take these things that they worship, pleasure and sin and the lust of the eyes, the f- lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the things that cause you to be anxious. And they lay them, notice this, he buries them at the base of a tree. They're taking their sin and they're laying it down on an altar below a tree. Does that sound familiar? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The tree of life was in the garden. The tree where our sin was atoned for was a cross. This is an Old Testament picture of the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God. We get to lay our sin down at the foot of the cross and have it removed practically as we lay it down and then washed away by the blood of Jesus that is poured out from that cross. And so here, before they enter into the worship of the one true God, he calls them to lay down their idols, to lay down the the things that they're worshiping instead of God. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods, verse 4, which were in their hands, and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. Burying the old life. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Remember in the last chapter, after his sons brutally murdered the entire town of Shechem, Jacob's only cry out is, you've made me a stench in the eyes of all these other nations. They're going to hate me, and they're going to wipe us out. They're going to kill us. But notice what happens is God says, I want you to go to Bethel. And, I, and then he buries all the idols, which, by the way, God didn't command that. God didn't tell them to lay down the idols. He said, go back to Bethel. And in response, Jacob didn't have to lay down his idols, but he was just so thankful that the Lord wasn't done with them yet, that he gave him a second chance to obey, that he said, okay, we need to... God told us to do this before. Maybe we shouldn't continue on from Shechem business as usual. 
Maybe we're going to have to do the right thing the right way this time. Putting away all of our sin. And so as he buries the sin and as they pursue the house of God and they, they, they head in this direction, it says that be, purity brings power in your life. If you wonder why you don't have any power to have victory over sin in your life, perhaps it's because there's no purity. Because as they pursue the house of God and as they lay down their idols and their sin, notice what happens is all their enemies are they fear the Lord. They don't even try to attack them. Jacob doesn't have any way to defend his family. Remember, he's got a limp in his hip. He wrestled with God. He's weak now. He can't fight for himself. So the Lord is going to fight his battles. And as there's purity in the camp, they have power and victory over their enemies without ever raising a knife. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was getting ready to be arrested And Peter sees this, and he gets out his sword, and he's going to help. And and as as they're approaching Jesus, these, these armed guards, they said, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus says, here I am. And at just those words, it says that all of the company that was there to arrest him, they fall over. That just the words, I am, knocked them over. There was purity in Jesus, and so he had the power of the Spirit. And so they found out that the power comes from purity. And as they returned to worship God instead of the house of God, it says there in verse um, 5, they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. They did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel. It had been renamed previously by by Jacob which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel. The first time he was here, he called it Bethel. Surely this is the house of God. But this time as he arrives, he says El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. So now he's renamed the place. He's showing that he's progressing in his understanding of God. He's not just coming to the house of God. Now he names the place God in the house of God. He's worshiping the God of the house of God. See, here's what happens. And this is why churches die. What happens is we start worshiping the house of God. And even for us as a young church plant, we're eight years old, we can start to worship the way we do church. We can even, because we study the Bible cover to cover, start to worship the Bible. We can worship how we do children's church. We can worship the building that we're in and not even realize it. But maturity is found in the believer when we worship the God of the Bible, the God of the house of God. The God of my salvation, not just the fact that I'm saved. And it's a subtle thing, but it's an important thing. We have to get back to worshiping the God of the house of God. Now, some of you have come from traditional backgrounds. And if somebody were to even suggest that we're going to get rid of the pews and we're going to get chairs because we want to use the room for more than just one purpose, that pew can become an idol. Why? 
because of who gave it or because I have memories of sitting in that pew when I got saved. And we can worship the pew or the carpet or you name it. We can worship some piece of how we do church rather than the God of the house of God. And so God's desire in our dying culture of faith is to tear down idols. Who cares what kind of carpet we have? Who cares where our building is located? Who cares if we sing from hymnals or from a screen? Let's worship the God of the house of God. Let's be careful. And so uh, they return to worship God instead of the house of God. Because this is the God who has been with me everywhere I have gone. That's what Jacob leads his household with. So verse 9. Well, we'll begin in verse 8. It says, Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Elon Bakuth, and we'll get to there in a little while. It means the tree of weeping. Jacob lost a relative. Basically, his, his mom uh, birthed him, and then she had a midwife, and this midwife stayed with their family like a family member. And we'll get back to there in a minute. Verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. And God said some things to him. He said, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but instead Israel shall be your name. Now we know that from previous chapters. But God's repeating these things because Jacob is like us. He forgets what God has told him. Verse 10, excuse me, into verse 9. So he called his name Israel. Also, God said to him, verse 11, I am God Almighty, or in some of your translations, it'll say, I am El Shaddai, which means I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I now give to you and to your descendants after you, I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he had talked with him. So let's stop there. God reminds Jacob the promises he's already made, and then he confirms them. Now, you might not be like Jacob, but Jacob's been through a lot since the last time he's heard these things. He's made a lot of mistakes He's failed. He's even sinned. And so he might start to doubt the things that God's promised to him, thinking, if I mess up, God's going to step away, and he's going to say, never mind, I'll bless somebody else. But here he recommits himself to Jacob. This isn't Jacob recommitting himself to God after he's failed. This is God recommitting himself to Jacob. Now you might say, well, that's not fair. Isn't God holy? Yes. And yes, it's not fair. That's why it's called grace, by the way. But Jacob's learning a lesson here that God's promises are not null and void because of our failures. But we have to get back to him. And so he says, you have a new identity. You're no longer heel catcher. Now you're the one who has wrestled with God and prevailed. You're no longer, and he, then he says, and here's my name. I'm not just God. I'm almighty God. I'm king over all kings. 
I'm Lord over all lords. I am the mighty one. And then he says something that echoes back to Genesis in chapter 3, I believe. Be fruitful and multiply. Command never changed. Uh, Be fruitful and multiply. Have children's. And then he says, a nation, Israel, and other nations, and then kings, national rulers, will come from your descendants. The nation of Israel is going to have kings. It's going to be a great nation. Then he promises and confirms his promise, this land that I promised to your fathers, I now bequeath it to you. It will be yours, and it will be your descendants after them. So then, at this point, God went up from him, not yet fulfilling all these things, but promising that he will. This landed on me when I was studying on Friday. Have you ever seen God promise a bunch of things and then ascend, and yet they're not done yet? And so you have time to wait. Makes me think of a New Testament passage where Jesus promised a bunch of things, fulfilled some of them, and then went up from them before they were fulfilled. God reminds and confirms to us as believers. You might say, what does this Jacob stuff have anything to do with me? It has everything to do with you, because the descendant that would be the king, one of the kings from his line, but the king of all kings, Jesus. But then God reminds and confirms similar promises to us. You have a new identity. No longer will you be called a child of the flesh, but 2 Corinthians, Paul makes big of this. In 5.17, he says, You are no longer the same, but you are a new creation in Christ. Behold, all things have passed away, and all things have become new. And I think many of us struggle with that in all of our life in Christ. But, but I have all these things from my past. There's no way God can, give her, can forgive me. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You have been made a new creation. You have a new name that many of you will not know until heaven. And he's going to call you by it, and you're going to recognize it. Your ears will perk up. You'll know. Number two, he is El Shaddai. God Almighty. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. His name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Matthew 28, verse 19 through 20. Now, we think of be fruitful and multiply, and we think of the commission to go and procreate, right? From Genesis and what he was telling Jacob. Matthew 28 says, Go therefore, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, new birth, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Behold, I will be with you. Be fruitful and multiply, Christians. The Great Commission is to go and multiply, not by water, but by the blood and spirit, that we are to make new creations in Christ by sharing the good news. Unless a person is born again, they will not see the kingdom of heaven. That's the news that we have to share. I've been born again. You can be too. He says, a nation and nations and a nation rulers will come from your descendants. 
First Peter chapter two, verse nine says, I'm making of you a nation of kings and priests. Kings shall come from the descendants of Jacob, and we are that by faith. We are now kings and priests in the name of Jesus. He says, the land that I promised your fathers will be yours. And in John chapter 14, I'm going to turn there real quick. In verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, we might not get a nation, but he's preparing a place. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. The way there is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And then God went up from him, not yet fulfilling these things. And in Acts chapter 1, the disciples, Luke gives us this account in Acts. He says, as they were standing there, and Jesus gave them the commission, he went up from there, having told them all these things, and yet they were not yet fulfilled. And that's where we find ourselves today. So I just enjoyed that this week. So back in Genesis Verse 14, chapter 35. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone. This is like a memorial. And he poured a drink offering on it. This would be a drink offering of wine. And he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel, the house of God. Now, he had done this before. When God revealed himself to Jacob in the dream, he set up a pillar, a memorial. And there he poured out oil on this stone. But this time it's different. He's seeing the God of Bethel, and he doesn't just pour oil on it, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but he pours out wine. Wine is the blood of grapes. We don't call it that. But in order to get wine or grape juice or whatever your favorite is, it has to be stomped. It has to be crushed. And when it's crushed, the blood of the grape comes out and it is sweet. But it's a picture of joy. And yet when grapes are crushed, the grape no longer exists. And yet here we have a pillar of stone anointed with wine and poured out olive oil upon it. What's the significance here? Well, I have there for you 1 Peter 3, and that's wrong. I'm going to take you to 1 Timothy 3. Praise the Lord. I was reading that this morning. I was like, why am I going to 1 Peter? That's because I did in the previous slide. But 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 14, Paul writes to Timothy and says, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but If I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Look at this. In the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar. What's he set up? 
a pillar of stone. The ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. The church is a pillar. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The pillar and the ground of the faith is the church. That's you and I. But without the anointing or the pouring out of the blood of grapes, the drink offering, the blood of Jesus, the church is not pure. So it's first purified by the drink offering. And then after the drink offering, after the cleansing, Old Testament says that without the the shedding of blood, the high cost of sin, think sin's no big deal? Jesus died to save you from sin because the penalty of sin is death. But Jesus' death on our behalf offers up the blood of Jesus applied to our lives and we are made pure in his sight. And then after that purity, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, not only the washing away of the guilt and the sin, but now the Holy Spirit poured out upon us to give us life in the Spirit and power to say no to sin and to live for the Spirit, to do the things that please God. You cannot do it on your own. You need the Holy Spirit to empower you to live a victorious life. It's the only way. If you remember in the New Testament, there was several times where apostles encountered people that had been baptized by the baptism of John, and then then the apostle or the, the, the one sent by God would come to them and say, well, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And they would say to him, oh, we've not heard of this baptism. And there's all, all kinds of arguments about, well, when you're baptized, you receive the Spirit. But I believe, based on what the Bible teaches, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out. That's what convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But then the Holy Spirit fills us at salvation. But I think there's also the responsibility for believers to ask for more of the Holy Spirit because we, as H.A. Ironside said, we leak. If we're cracked vessels and you pour something into us, we're going to leak out, which is a bummer because nobody likes a leaky vessel. But it's a wonderful thing because then the Holy Spirit, it leaks on other people. And then they're convicted of their sin. And then we have to ask for more, which means we have to keep going back to the God of the house of God. We have to say, Lord, keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. And then as we keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking, it's not that we have to do it, but if you want to live for Jesus, it's draining. And so we're asking, Lord, give me the power of your Holy Spirit. Give me what Jesus has. Give me what the, the, the apostles had. Give me what your disciples had on the day of Pentecost, because as they were filled with the Spirit, they dwelled together in unity And then the whole world could see that they were unified, not by something you could see, but by the life that you couldn't see. And so, just another thought as we close up this this idea here. Uh, Luke chapter 10, if you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan, in order to deal with the wounds of the man who had been hurt on the road, on the way, 
he poured out on him wine on his wounds. And then on his wounds, after pouring out wine, he anointed him with oil. That was the beginning of his healing. Someone walking by the way, who had been bruised and battered and beaten by the world. The Samaritan comes along and pours out wine and oil, and I think the significance is extremely important. Jesus didn't waste any words. And so, Jacob's obedient. There's purity in his life. He's worshiping the God of the house of God, and yet Jacob's obedience and the blessing that God bestowed upon him did not guarantee that there would be no more trials in his life. I think there's a lot of parallels for us as believers. But notice in verse 8 of chapter 35, Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, that Rebekah's his mom, she died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Elon Bakuth, which is tree of weeping. And then in verse 16, as we continue, it says, They journeyed from Bethel, and when there was a little, but a little distance to go to Ephrath, which, by the way, Ephrath is modern-day Bethlehem, Rachel labored in childbirth. Kind of interesting that someone would leave a place and travel with their wife about to pop and have a baby. Uh, I always thought you'd stay put, but there was another one that we know of in the New Testament just about to have a baby, and uh, the nation they were occupied by said, go, go to your hometown for a census, right? Jesus, uh, born in his hometown, because of a census. And yet here Jacob is leaving Bethel, even though he was told to dwell there. And Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor, as if there's any other kind. Uh, Miss Dana was praying about childbirth this morning, and we're praying for uh, someone among us that's about to pop. And um, maybe that's not the best way to put it. (laughs) Probably not. Um, but it might feel like that towards the end. And, and yet childbirth is never a light thing. Um, but she was in hard labor, verse 17. And the midwife said to her, don't be afraid. You will have this son also. Remember, she had already had Judah. No, not Judah. Joseph, thank you. Joseph had already been born, but then Benjamin was born last. And so it was that her soul, as her soul was departing, for she died in child labor, that she called his name Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, And Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And so, Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. So all of this sorrow and pain, he loses his wife, and then his oldest son commits adultery with his wife that just passed, maidservant. Not great. And so, just because Jacob was obedient did not mean he was exempt from trials. 
Some of them sin and some of them just a fact of life and that's death. So his mom's nurse, Nanny, dies and has to be buried. He had already lost his mom previously. His favorite wife, Rachel, dies while giving birth. Interesting because in Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, uh, Rachel had famously said in her distress, give me children, because she was barren, lest I die. And yet she gets her heart's desire and that actually kills her. And then his oldest son, Reuben, lay with his wife's servant. And this sin will take away uh, his favor with the Lord. It will cost him his birthright. And then his father, verse 27 through 29, Then Jacob came to his father, Isaac and Mamre of Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. And the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So the Lord brought Jacob all the way back to the land and he got to see his father before he passed. Now Isaac thought he was going to die earlier, but he got 43 more years from what he thought he would get. And so there's a lot there. But life is short and full of trials. To those who trust the Lord and to those who don't, I would much rather experience those brokenness and that trial with the God of the God of Bethel, the house of Bethel. Now there are 12 sons instead of 11. So there's, uh, there's sorrow, but there's also joy that comes. Uh, his wife did die, but he also got another son. She called him son of my sorrow, That was Rachel's perspective. And yet, Benjamin is named son of my right hand, the hand of strength. Now, that for Jacob, who had just lost his very favorite wife, which feels weird to say, but he lost his favorite wife, it was a statement of faith. This wasn't something that he knew would come to pass, and yet he was saying, though I lose my wife, I'm still going to trust that the Lord's promises are secure and will be fulfilled. Interestingly enough, Jacob says, son of my right hand. And from the descendants of Benjamin will come in the Old Testament, Saul, who ends up being the first king of Israel. It's a blessing, right? Now, Saul didn't end well, but to be the father of the father of the father of a king, that's pretty pretty amazing. That's a blessing. But then For us, we've benefited from this statement of faith because Saul, who becomes Paul, the apostle that wrote most of the New Testament epistles, he's a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. So what a statement of faith that's been fulfilled. And I guarantee that in heaven, uh, he was rewarded for his faith to see something that seemed impossible during brokenness. But we see Jesus here. And I know I skipped over um, verse 22 through um, 26, but we see again the 12 sons of Jacob. But for time's sake, I'm not going to read them. But I don't want us to miss Jesus. Because even in Benjamin's death, which I believe was uh, possibly because of the strain of labor, but also because we're traveling, I believe that Jacob was supposed to stay in Bethel 
and not drive his wife down the road, as many times we as husbands can do, uh, we forget that the wife is the weaker vessel and we're to take gentle care of them, especially in their moments where they're most full and and most uh, struggling for strength. But nonetheless, even in Jacob, what I believe is his failure to stay and dwell in the house of Bethel, he heads down the road and they lose Rachel and Benjamin is born. And even in the naming of Benjamin, we see Jesus. And I'm going to turn to Isaiah in chapter 53 in the third verse, very messianic chapter in Isaiah, where it says that Jesus was a son of sorrow. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And yet also in the son of of Mary and Jesus, we see the son of my right hand. And the right hand in the Bible is the, it's the hand of strength. Some of you lefties may not like that. But the right hand was a symbol of strength. And so in Psalm chapter 110, we see this as the psalmist in this messianic psalm is reading about what he may not have known at the time, but the Messiah It says there, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength, the hand of strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. And so we see Jesus even in the death. And then turn with me to Mark as we close. In chapter 16, the very last words of Mark, in his gospel account, Mark chapter 16, verse 19, says, So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he was received up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere. Where does Jesus remain right now? Yes, Sunday school answer, he's in your heart. But more biblically speaking, he is sitting down at the right hand of God the Father, and Hebrews says that he is praying for you and I at this very moment. He's praying for those who will inherit the salvation of God. He's praying for you and I. He's praying for all those who will believe. And he's praying for you even today. If you are sitting on the fence, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but you're still in Shechem. You're still in the world. You're still clinging to idols. And God's calling you to depart from the world, to bury your sin at the base of the cross that's already been paid for. And he's calling you to come to the house of God and to worship the God of the house of God. Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain, the Lamb that rose again from the grave by the power of God and has given us the Holy Spirit to see Him for all that He is and has given us power. I love what Psalm chapter 126 says in verse 5, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. So Lord Jesus, 
as we close our Bible study this morning, we come to you as people who are constantly in the need of you rooting out our sin, rooting out our idols, even those idols that might seem righteous. We can worship things or settings or places or things that you've gifted us with rather than the God of those things, the God who provides. And so, Lord Jesus, this morning, I pray that you would root out our sin, that you would restore true worship of the God of the house of God. And Father, as we have studied quite a bit this morning, it's a lot to cover in one morning, would you write these things down in our hearts and help us to apply them and to leave this place differently than we came in? Help us to do business with you and to let you cleanse and purify us. And as you cleanse us by your blood, And as you purify us, Lord, would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon each one of us who have gathered this morning. Give us the faith to ask for more of the Holy Spirit so that we can live in a way that is anointed, free of the irritants that the world will send our way, but also anointed so that we can be those who are sent by you to apply the blood to those that don't know you, to offer up the free salvation, the gift that we first received we could go and freely offer it up to those who are outside of the house of God. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word, that it's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that it would be rooted deeply and that we would be rooted in the ground and grounded in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's all stand as we...